Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So uh, we're going to start a brand new series today uh, called Intentional Parenting. Intentional Parenting. And I always uh, hesitate just a little bit to do series on parenting for two reasons. One, I know that people in the room aren't parents. Like we've got a decent singles population at our church. We have uh, folks who choose not to become parents. Cowards, right? For, for you know, like choose it. Right? We've, we've got other people who, uh, who want to become parents but can't become parents. And that can be incredibly, incredibly difficult. So when you come to a series where you're talking about parenting, you know, it just feels like kind of oh, poking, poking the, the wound. And um, we also have a great high school contingent. And, um, you know, hopefully many of you all will be parents someday, but you're like, does this even apply to me? Okay, yes, it does. Because you can hold your parents to everything I say today. You should be taking better notes than ever because the preacher said, all right? I'm just saying like that, that always kind of, you know, Keeps, keeps us from leaning too far in on this. But the reality is that the biggest population of our church, the biggest demographic, y'all, and it's a good thing, but it's parents with kids still in the home. So it's something that we have to address with regularity. Now, the other reason why we kind of sometimes stay, you know, arm's length from addressing parenting is because we know we have lots of parents in our room whose kids are adults. And you feel like the ship has sailed and you've already ruined them, right? So like, why are you gonna make me feel bad about all the things that I didn't do or all the ways that I messed up? And I I just want you to know that wherever you find yourself today on the parenting spectrum, really as Darian prayed earlier, I think God has something for you. A lot of these principles are translatable across the board. And some of y'all are aunts and uncles. Some of y'all are godparents. Some of you are grandmas and grandpas. And if I could just tell you about how my extended family continues to parent me to this day, you you know this, some of you in your personal life. My parents, my mother and father are still involved in the mentorship and formation of Tyler and my children. My sisters bring to bear their resources and their time and their energy and love on Lindsay and I, our marriage and our children. So there are ways outside of just like traditional parenting, if you will, for you to continue to impact the kingdom of God. So I'm telling you, stick with us in this series. Don't tune out, stick with us. I believe there's something for you, all right? Now, uh, that being said, the best book I've ever read on parenting, um, it's really on fathering, is this. It's called The Intentional Father. Okay. Um, men in the room, get it, man, get it. Uh, it's Intentional Father. It's written by uh, John Tyson. And at the beginning of the book, uh, Tyson does something interesting. He lays out what he calls his five types of fathers, five types of fathers that he's observed in his life. Now, I think this applies to mothers too. So I'm gonna universalize the language and just sort of walk you through his five. And these are a bit hard hitting, but just, just, just embrace. In fact, here's what I want you to do. As I'm reading through these, don't personalize these yet and think about you as a parent. Think about the parents who raised you. And I want you to ask yourself, the parents who raised me, which category do they fall in? Uh, type number one, Tyson says, is the irresponsible parent. The irresponsible parent. Uh, these are the parents, by the way, who are just absent. They're absent. These are the parents who create single parent homes. These are the parents that leave or disqualify themselves 
or are just afraid of the parenting task because it's a big task. And as they leave, they leave a giant father or mother wound in the lives of their kids. Every study on every metric of human flourishing shows that absent parents make success and stability far more difficult for kids. So let me ask you, were any of you raised by an irresponsible parent? Second type is uh, what Tyson calls the ignorant parent. And this is with all due respect, he uses the word ignorant, but there, there are parents out there who just don't know what they're doing. They just, they don't know how. It's not malicious. Usually they're a product of a home where they had an absent parent. So it's like, how am I supposed to know how to father? I didn't have one. How am I supposed to know how to mother? My mother was gone. Now for what it's worth, I believe this can be fixed with training, with mentorship, with putting yourself in a community with other healthy parents. Healthy church can help curb the learning curve quickly up and to the right when it comes to knowing how to be a parent. But I ask you today, anyone in here who was raised by an ignorant parent? A third type is what Tyson calls the inconsistent parent, the inconsistent parent. These are parents who are just kind of in and out of their kids' lives. They show up one moment in flashes of glory and then they just are gone, emotionally disengaged or an emotional wreck the next moment. I'll tell you this, I see so many high potential parents become inconsistent parents because of their work. They're like traveling all the time or it's like, you know, 80 hour work weeks or whatever it may be. And so they're just inconsistent at best. And they try to make up for that by taking their families on you know, extravagant vacations and putting them in immaculate homes and building walls of privilege and wealth around them. But they're rarely ever actually present. And even when they are present, they're not present because they're on the phone answering the emails, taking the calls, all the things. Basically, they allow personal ambition to take priority over formation in their family. And I wonder, was anyone in here raised by an inconsistent Now, category, category number four um, is what Tyson calls the involved parent, the involved parent. And this is your typical Christian parent. This is a good thing, okay? This is the parent who sets up the baby christening or prays at meals, they do the sex talk, you know, volunteers at Little League, uh, take them, takes them to church, hands them basically a generic version of, of life wisdom and a subdued version of Christianity, and honestly, I want to be clear here. This is a good thing. Like, thank God for this. It's a good thing. Uh, I wonder today who was raised by an involved parent. Now, here's my pitch for this series. Those four having been covered, I believe that in this cultural moment, involved parenting is a pretty good thing but it is not enough. It's not enough. Is it? Is it? Your kids are being inundated, y'all, nonstop by competing gospels. And you know it, you see it in classes at school, in shows on TV, in 24-7 breaking news, in articles online, in influencer posts on Instagram or TikTok theology videos or celebrity commencement speeches, in throwaway comments by their peers 
at school. Our popular culture is normalizing a moral vision that is far from the Christian one. And it is the relentless background noise of your kids' lives. So look, if you bring some sort of passive, sporadic, generic, half-baked version of Christianity to your kids that is devoid of the biblical call of holiness, self-sacrifice, and worship, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you it's not going to be enough. You'll lose that battle. Which is why the appeal of this series is this, category number five. Tyson calls it the intentional parent. And that's what I think we need in this moment. We need intentional parents. These are parents who see raising their kids to love Jesus and to love like Jesus as a top priority in their lives. They're unapologetic about it. And honestly, it shouldn't be controversial. Now, I wanna paint a very clear picture for you of exactly what I mean when I say an intentional uh, parent. Uh, and some of you are gonna need to go research this particular uh, parent later this week to find out more about him. But it, as far as I'm concerned, from everything I've seen from this, this, this man, he, he is incredible. Um, this is a picture of Bandit Healer. Bluey's dad. <laughs> and if you know, you know. Anyone else familiar with this epic father? I wanna see hands here. Okay, yeah. Okay, anyone else hate Bluey's father? Because of the endless amounts of creativity and energy and availability he brings to his children every day. Season three of Bluey dropped this week. Uh, it's like, for those of you who don't know, it's like the Sesame Street of the 2020s. It's been on in our house. I'm not salty or anything. I'm just saying like, if I spent entire days of the week playing make-believe with my kids instead of, I don't know, working, <laughs> I wouldn't be your preacher anymore. Like if I pulled the couch cushions out in the backyard and built a pillow fortress every time my kids asked me, my wife would be like, why are you putting our couch cushions in the grass, sicko? Bring them back inside. But that's Bandit for you. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I just turned on Bandit. He's good. Well, I like Bandit. Bandit plus Jesus is what we're after in the series. But I guess it's like, I just wish every once in a while, I'm sorry, we have a guest. I'm sorry, I don't know how Samaritan's Purse feels about this, but every once in a while, I just wish Bandit would accidentally say a cuss word in front of his kids. You know what I mean? Or just disappear in the bathroom for an hour, scrolling on Facebook. It's just, it'll make us all feel better. Now, um, thank you for the therapy, but seriously. Okay, seriously, focus. Seriously. Um, most of us know how to be intentional. We, do, we don't need a cartoon dog. I've seen it in so many of your lives. Now, I have three kids. My oldest is seven. And I have been stunned at how amazingly intentional the fathers of Oldham County are at teaching their boys how to play baseball. <laughs> Stunning. And they're only seven, but these guys are putting in the work to level their kids up. Now, if you ask them, you know, about intentionality with God and their kids are like, well, I don't know how to do that. To which I'm like, you know exactly how to be intentional. You do, seriously, you do. Thousands of dollars invested in travel teams and one-on-one -on -one private lessons and equipment to play with. Hours upon hours invested uh, in playing catch every week or, you know, 
going to practice, attending summer baseball camps. They got cages built in their yard. They got buckets of baseballs. They're watching MLB games at night to close the day out with their kids. Don't tell me you don't know how to be intentional. Okay, and my son is into all this. Okay, I'm a baseball dad. I'm like, I love it. I really do. I went to uh, three, we had Palmer in three summer baseball camps this summer. And it's because he wanted to. And it was a blast for him. And I would go to some of these camp days and I would see dads literally out there lined around the fence, missing work, I guess, taking off from it in order to watch their kids practice baseball. And I thought to myself, this isn't negative. This is really what I thought to myself, the pride and the ownership that these fathers are taking over their seven-year-old son's baseball prowess is stunning. That's an amazing dad willing to, to make that level of sacrifice. I mean that. I know I'm being a bit cheeky here, but there's nothing wrong with baseball. I love baseball. Palmer and I are playing baseball. It's just that here's the reality, and let's just let's gain some perspective here. There's almost a 0% chance that your kid's gonna go D1. And there's an even less chance that your kid's gonna play in the MLB, but there's a 100% chance that he will stand before God someday. Will they be able to show God more than good swing mechanics? (laughs) Now look, it's the same with basketball and music classes and band stuff and gymnastics and dance and you know, what was it like Lego yoga was on the list or something. You can keep your kids engaged in all sorts of activities all the time if you want to. And I have found that the people of, of Louisville, East Louisville in particular, They want to. In my observation, we want to be intentional parents. You know how to deploy your money and your time to make sure your kid is disciplined and trained and formed. It's just in what? In what? So I'm not asking you to stop baseball. We're not going to. Like the pitch of this series, pun intended, is to bring that same intentionality. Maybe even just a little bit more intentionality into your kid's faith. Because here's a fact, church twice a month, whenever travel ball or you know, lake visits don't conflict, that's not gonna be enough in this cultural moment. A peppy 30-minute talk in youth group is not gonna be enough in this cultural moment. A 15-minute Bible lesson across the street is not gonna be enough in this cultural moment. All that is good. All that is a part of the intentionality equation. But I could bring our youth pastor up on stage. I could bring our children's pastors up on stage and they would tell you the same thing. They would say, that's not going to be enough. What we need is nothing less than parental responsibility in this cultural moment. What we need is a generation of intentional parents. That's what we're after this series. Now, uh, let me define an intentional parent for you. Uh, The intentional parent identifies the unique qualities that God has blessed their kid with, because you have a unique kid, right? There's no like formula here for this that's clear cut. No, your, your kid is unique. They have unique gifts, unique trauma, unique uh, you know, emotions, unique everything, right? They, they're a uniquely gifted kid. So you gotta figure out what kid God's given you. And then, then the intentional parent brings extraordinary intentionality into the parenting process so they can raise up a man or woman of consequence in the kingdom of God. Now, I wanna give you another vision of the kind of intentionality that's possible here um, that's more realistic than a cartoon dog, okay? It's like, this is actually real. It's a real example. 
Um, do you know who I think is just knocking it out of the park when it comes to intentional parent right now? Like she's totally getting it right at this moment. Uh, the Mormons. The Mormons. I have friends who are Mormons. Uh, some of my closest friends in high school were Mormons. I went to prom with a Mormon in high school. I, like, I disagree with swaths of their theology. Don't get me wrong. It's another sermon. However, I think that they bring incredible intentionality to raising their kids. It's not like the Broadway show, y'all. It's not. Do you have friends who are Mormons? Does anybody you have friends who are Mormons? You ever met their kids? Yeah. You're like, what alien planet are you from, young man? You just shook my hand and looked me in the eyes. Will your parents mentor me, please? Like, it's, it's what it feels like. So uh, when I started seeing like, man, there's a pattern here. I started researching the discipleship pathway that the LDS takes uh, their kids through. And I've got for you today, just kind of collected in one slot here, um, some of the keys for Mormons as they raise their kids. First, four values, four values that they have. One, marry within the faith. Let's not just zoom past that one right there, young folks. One, marry within the faith. Two, stay married. Let's not just zoom past that one either. U.S. of A, marry within the faith, stay married. Three, model faith at home. And four, emphasize education. In all the literature that I could read on this, those four were in it all. Now, here's their pathway. Uh, first, immediately after birth, Mormon children begin attending church. From what I understand, there's no nursery during the worship hour. All the kids are in the service together. It can be a little noisy, a little rowdy, but the adults want to model worship for their kids. Which, by the way, I thought, this is interesting because one of the reasons we love high school being in the service is because they bring such energy and passion to the worship. They model worship for the adults. Hmm. Keep it up. After worship, there are two additional, uh, what we might call Sunday school hours. Making this, the Sunday commitment, by the way, for, for the mornings, three hours long, at least. At 18 months, kids begin attending age-specific classes with singing, learning, and games. From four to eight years old, they begin a four-year cycle where they study the Bible one year, then church history and the Book of Mormon the next year. Then they just kind of repeat it again at a higher level. Uh, children are baptized at the age of eight. And at this time, they join church-sponsored clubs. The boys go to Cub Scouts. The girls go to a similar Faith in God program. Um, and the point of it is just to get them in, in activities that help them set and carry out goals and hold uh, meaningful activities and service projects. From the age of 9 to 12, the teaching they received is then linked up with their teenage siblings and their parents. So what they do is they'll basically do two years of Bible study, one year on the Book of Mormon, one year on church history. Then when they get into high school, this is what's really stunning, they start their kids on what they call seminary. All their high schoolers go through seminary. Did you know this? It's called seminary. For four years, the kids meet every single school day. And in year one, they study the Old Testament. Year two, I think it's the New Testament. Uh, year three, the Book of Mormon. Year four, church history. By the time the student graduates uh, from seminary, a.k.a. high school, they're competent in them all. Oh, and by the way, do you know when they meet on these school days? Usually about 6 a.m. in the morning. Because after school, they play sports. They got jobs. They're doing, school act or they're doing after school activities. 
Then, uh, before they go in college, Mormon young people are encouraged to take a gap year. Do you know what a gap year is? They're actually encouraged to take two gap years. A gap year is basically saying, I'm going to hold off on going on college so I can spend time on my spiritual formation first. Those gap years usually include some sort of like global mission trip or uh, you know, service project. And they raise all the money for those gap years on their own. They either reach out to their relational networks or these young people get a job. Uh, all this, by the way, is on top of the fact that the church encourages parents to teach Jesus at the home. Uh, the parents are encouraged to do devotions every day with their kids and have a family night at least once a week. Okay. Now, if you measure a church by the coherence of its doctrine, I have problems with the Latter-day Saints. But if you measure a church by the results, the kind of human beings that they are producing right now, at least when it comes to kids that I've seen in high school and college, I'm just over here like, well, no wonder. No wonder. Their high schoolers go to seminary at 6 a.m. every morning. And by the way, that's not just a commitment from the kids. Think of the extraordinary discipline and presence that takes from the parents. Like, have you ever, ever experienced something like this? Huh. Well, of course you have. It's called travel ball. Oh, if we could just bring that intentionality to our faith. Now, let's get theological here. Big, big point. It's a big point. All right. I believe that when you study the scriptures, when you study how God created us, the necessity of building healthy families is presented as fundamental to human flourishing. It's fundamental. I want to read you three passages from uh, the sacred origin stories of Christianity. Beginning of Genesis. And brief reminder here, this is our account of how human beings were designed to work. How we were made to fit in God's grand universe that he pieced together. Okay, all sorts of topics could have been covered, by the way, in, in the creation story. But what we see when we read the passage is that at least the part on humans, the family system dominates the conversation. There's like three fundamental things to human nature that's laid out in the creation story. The image of God, work, and family. And if you can get these three things right on God's terms, a human community thrives. Now, let's start with Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The scriptures say, then God said, uh, one, and these numbers are my own. You'll see why in a second. One, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Two, they will reign over the fish and sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God did that. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Then three, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the animals. Let's scurry along the ground. Now, again, I just hope you see here, fundamental to the design and destiny of humanity here is family building. The argument flows as follows. One, God creates human beings to bear his image. Two, at least in part, being an image bearer means you reign on God's behalf. We are his power and his presence as his image bearers here on earth. And three, Part of the way that we reign is being fruitful and multiplying by building families. According to the scriptures, God created gendered humans, male and female, that come together and multiply. These families turn into communities. These communities 
build civilizations, and these civilizations are what steward the earth for good or evil. Fill the earth and govern it, he says. We sure have. Now, Genesis 2 gets a bit more specific, and it introduces us to the basic building block of family, which is, anyone? Marriage. Marriage. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, a helper who is just right for him. So uh, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while the man slept. The Lord God took out of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains, the author gives us some commentary here. He says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Leave and cleave. That's what the KJV says, right? Leaves and cleaves. And the two are united into one. Now, the poetic imagery here is beautiful. And I want to be clear. The point of this story is not to show us that God like, made woman from a rib, although he could. No, the idea of taking woman from man's side is to show us how the two should live side by side, connected at the hip or at the rib, if you will. Also, helper in this passage, I'm going to create for him a helper. It does not mean junior assistant, <laughs> men. In fact, the Hebrew word here for helper is used most often in the Old Testament for God. So it does not imply inferiority in any way, shape, or form, as some people might say that it does. No, uh, rather it implies the necessity of woman to complete humanity. The two leave father and mother, cleave to one another, and are united as one unit. It's beautiful. Now, before moving on here, I just, I gotta say, you call me old-fashioned. It's fine, call me old-fashioned, but the Bible is quite old and fashionable still, in my humble opinion. So I just, I wanna stop and point out for a moment here how exalted, notice how exalted, highly specific and also highly restrictive the perspective the biblical text takes here towards family. It really is. God could have created families in a number of ways. He chose this way, with gender and marriage and union and sex and childbearing. His choice. He's the creator after all, right? Now, in our society, this is treated so carelessly or so accidentally. We make gender into nothing. Marriage is optional. Sex is casual. Child rearing is done today through broken homes or farmed out. And for the Christian, our sacred text does not treat family that way. We can't make gender into nothing. Can't make marriage into nothing. Can't pretend like divorce is no big deal. Can't treat sex flippantly like it's just some sort of appetite. These are the key ingredients to family. And family ain't nothing in some ways, it's everything because we cease to exist without it and we thrive within it when it's done right. Now, that brings us to parenting. Interesting little passage here, Genesis chapter five, one through three, bet you never read this one before. Uh, it says, when God created humankind, five one, he made them in the likeness of God. There's that image of God language again. <clears throat> Male and female, he created them, he blessed them, named them humankind when they were created. Then check this out, verse three. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, in his likeness, in his, Adam's likeness, according to his image. 
And he named him Seth. Now, this is just a fascinating little bit here. So John Walton, my favorite Old Testament scholar like ever on earth, he points out in his Genesis commentary here on chapter 5 that uh, chapter 5 connects the image of God in Adam to the image of God that Adam imparts on Seth. Or in other words, the text implies that in some ways the image of God is innate, but in other ways the image of God is actually imparted on our children. It is innate in the dignity inherent in every human being. We are all stamped with a divine worthy of love, period. However, it is imparted through our development, through our nurture. We can become more or less like God, more or less holy, more or less people of love, more or less human over the course of our lives. This is parenting, by the way. It's parenting. Because you have been tasked with cultivating the image of God in your kids. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, I find it fascinating here that Paul says Christ. Christ is the visible image. The Greek word there is icon. Fascinating little word study. The visible image of the invisible God. Or in other words, Jesus is the best and perfect representation of what image of Godness looks like in human form. So as parents, our role is difficult, difficult to do, but simple to understand. We intentionally teach our kids to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Okay, theology lesson over. We're just running out of time here. For for what it's worth, uh, this is why the global church has historically said that the family, and I quote, is the basic basic building block of society. You ever heard that before? The basic building block of society. This is why. It's because of our sacred texts. It's not because of like a voting block or anything like that. Okay, it's the family where a community gets its citizens and its leaders. And so healthy societies will preserve, protect, and promote family. Now, uh, you should know, when I got my theology degree from a Catholic institution, which I'm so thankful for, uh, one of our classes there was on the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, Vatican II. Any Catholics in here familiar, right? Anyone alive? Okay, 1962 to 1965, you show your age there. Um, Now for what, here's what an ecumenical council is. Um, An ecumenical council is when the Catholic church, the Pope, brings together all the bishops from all over the world to solve a problem or multiple problems. And these are incredibly rare because in what, the 2000 year history of the Catholic church, there's only been 21 of them. 21 dating back to the 4th century, or 22 if you count the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which I would. For the record, okay, um, in large part, the history of the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox is the history of the church. Because Protestants didn't exist until 1,500 years in. That's us. And our little tribe, the Restoration Movement, didn't really exist until the turn of the 19th century. So we're like babies on the scene. 200 years old. The reason why I point this out is because when the Catholic Church speaks authoritatively like this, they're drawing from a reservoir of 2,000 years of collective wisdom and a global voice of church leaders, which I believe gives them tremendous institutional authority. Now, Vatican II stretched out over four years. Four-year church meeting. Could you imagine a church meeting that would go four? Could you imagine a sermon? 
They go four years. Yeah, I could. Um, okay, so it's four years. They, they met seasonally. And the central goal of Vatican II was to answer the question of missiology is what I call it, missiology. How do we take the unchanging truth of Jesus into a changing world today, into a modernizing world, into a, honestly a secularizing world? Now, the Catholic Church admitted at that point they weren't doing a very good job at it. They had not responded well to World War II or the Holocaust. They had not responded well to many of the global events and the secularization of the West. So 2,500 bishops from around the world came to fix the problem. You had like the American delegation, the Ethiopian delegation, the Italians, the Argentinians, the Nigerians, the South Koreans, they're all there. Now, uh, one of their four constitutions that they published here, and here's, here's by the way, a copy of, of the, all the documents. It's a, gr- listen, listen. That's, that's, that's a bit, it's a great doorstop, okay? You get a bunch of preachers together for a while and this is what happens. Uh, so it's, uh, it's four constitutions. The longest one, and I believe probably the most important one, was uh, called Gaudium et Spes, um, or in English, the pastoral, uh, the English title of it was the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. In this, the bishops identified two urgent problems that were deeply affecting the human race. And their opinion was that if we could fix these two problems, then it would heal the church at the root level and literally change the destiny of humanity. There was total consensus on these two. The document was approved by a vote of 2,307 to 75. That's a 97% affirmative vote. And have you ever been to a church meeting before? That's good. (laughs) Some would call it a miracle. Now, are you ready to hear the keys? The keys for the church to save the modern world. Here's the two. I'm gonna say them in reverse order. Second, they said second. Second key was effective cultural engagement by Christians. And first, the key, number one, was promoting the dignity of marriage and the family. And I personally couldn't agree more. So today, look around the city. Every person you come eyeball to eyeball with, healthy or not, selfish or servant, they are a product of a family system. And while nature matters, so does nurture. You want to change a generation, change the family. Now, all that being said, uh, to close here, um, I'll take communion here in a second. But before we do, I have three questions I want you to consider and just meditate on today and this week. Three questions. And then we'll come back next week and continue this conversation. First question is this. What kind of parent am I? What kind of parent am I? Am I the irresponsible, the ignorant, the inconsistent, the involved, or the intentional parent? I want you to be just painstakingly honest here. One of the things about parenting is that it can bring up so much grief and so much shame. I just want to remind you today that there is endless and abundant amount of grace in God. By the way, if you look at the model of families lived out by many of the greatest heroes in Scripture, what you'll see is that the Bible families were a mess. David's family, Abraham, like just look at, look at J- Joseph and his brother. They were a mess, right? They were a mess. And yet there was endless amounts of grace and intervention by God, forgiveness. God still worked through generations. The same is available to you. So don't beat yourself up on this. Accept the grace of God. Believe that all things are possible with him. Believe that he's not done with you yet as a parent. 
and be really honest with yourself right now in this moment. Where am I at? Define reality so we can move forward, y'all. Where am I at? Scripture's clear. Scripture's clear. If you're gonna be a parent, you're gonna need God's forgiveness and God's power, but he's gonna need your availability. Be available to this question. Where am I really at? What kind of parent am I? Am I the irresponsible parent, the ignorant parent, the inconsistent parent, the involved parent, or the intentional parent? Second question here. What kind of parents raised me? Because getting underneath that question will be really, really helpful in understanding why you are the way you are. Pray on that this week. And then last, most importantly, I challenge you to 24 hours of prayer and fasting around this one. Go for it. Last, I want you to ask yourself, what's it gonna take for me to become more intentional? What's it gonna take? Because it is never too early and it is never too late to be intensely intentional. Are you Are you? This is too important not to try our best to get this right, y'all. The pitch of this parenting series is that parenting your kid or your grandkid or your nephew or your niece or whoever, in the name of Jesus, the pitch of this series is that that should be one of your top priorities. You should be sacrificing profit at work. You should be sacrificing personal ambition. You should be sacrificing sleep. You should be giving your best hours, your best planning, your best thinking, and your best ideas to this. You should be bringing to bear on your kids' discipleship all the wisdom and creativity that life uh, life has given you, all the wounds and scars, all the lessons from the school of hard knocks. You should be all in on this. It should be calendared, careful, and courageous. If you are a mom or dad, Front lines of the mission field for you start at home. And I'm appealing to you today in this series to see it that way. Okay, okay I'm a kind of a go-getter, if you don't know this about me yet. Um, so one of the things I need to be reminded of constantly is that you can't focus on everything, right? You can't prioritize everything or else it's not a priority. You can only focus on a few things. So look, if you were to ask me, Tyler, in your life, what is one of the two or three things that you want to get right, that you want to stay focused on? Here's what I have covenanted before God and my wife and my children. I want to be able to say one day when my kids fly the nest that I made it a primary ambition to be an intentional presence in their lives for Jesus' sake, period. I want to be able to say when it comes to parenting, I got it right, not perfect, But right, I pointed to Jesus, put in the time, they were a top priority, and I sacrificed mounds of energy and money and personal ambition to raise children of consequence. Look, nobody says that, by the way, anymore. Everybody has this sort of false humility around parents, or it's like a running joke among parents where you're like, well, you know, don't write the parenting book, right, because I can't write the parenting book, and, you know. I'm just like, "Why, why are we like that? Why not write the parenting book? Go for it. Like, I think the reason why we don't do that. It's because we can't control our kids, right? Can't control them. They're their own human beings with their own free will decisions, their own autonomy. They're gonna choose God for themselves or not someday. They're gonna choose a life for themselves and it may not be the one that you've chosen for them someday. It's kind of hard to come to grips to that. What we want is we want our kids to be a math equation. We want them to be a recipe with predictable ingredients that we can put in and get a guaranteed result. But they're not that. We can't control the end. That's God's business anyways. So when as a parent, you just let that burden go and you say that's between God and them and you stop worrying about the end and instead just focus on the means. Focus on the intentionality that you covenant before God to bring every day into your kid's life. I'm telling you, there's absolutely no excuse why every person in here can't say, I gave it my all. I invested the resources I had. I was an intentional parent. 
So that's my challenge for you. In Jesus' name, let's go for it. One more time, I'm gonna put these questions on the screen and I'm gonna give you just a moment to reflect on them. And I wanna encourage you to come back next week as we continue the conversation.